Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk, to subscribe today. I'm Graham Stewart, and in this edition of The Critic podcast, the theme is the dangers of our addiction to digital information, social media, and the algorithms that direct us to what to view next. Joining me are Alex Storey, the former Olympic rower and broker who has written for The Critic about how Generation Z became Generation Me, and Robert Wigley, chairman of UK Finance, whose book, Born Digital, The Story of a Distracted Generation, has just been published. It's estimated that uh, Generation Z, young people who were born in the 1990s and early years of this century, spend on average about seven hours a day online. Uh, Robert Wigley, how many hours a day do you spend online? Probably about the same. Um, And I I have to say that one of the dangers of writing this book is that you hold yourself up as some uh, virtue of parenting, which I'm certainly not. And actually, in a way, that was one of the motivations for writing the book, was to acknowledge that our generation has probably not set a good example to Generation Z. But I also think that during their adolescence, um, the technology has become even more ubiquitous than it was for our generation. So the temptation and then the sort of proclivity to use it has gone up. So we, we weren't good role models. I'm speaking for myself, I certainly wasn't. Um, but the temptations are even greater now. You, of course, grew up uh, in your early years at a time before there was anything like the level of uh, always-on digital connectivity there is now. Uh, so you've had a, you know, a previous world to experience the alternatives with as, whilst seeing the, the benefits that, uh, that uh, modern technology brings. Um, what benefit does that give you, that, that knowledge of, of you know, the world before the, the early 1990s? Um, and what would you say that allows you to um, inform younger people who simply have no contrasting experience and therefore think the digital world is, is, is entirely normal and inhabit that world as much as they inhabit a, a, a real world. In a way, that is the difference between Generation Z and the generations that preceded it, because, because we had a part of our life, at least, where um, either there was no technology or it was more nascent. We do make a differentiation between the online and the offline world and between on and offline relationships, face-to-face conversations versus online conversations. Whereas most of Generation Z have never known a time when Google didn't exist, when they weren't carrying uh, what we call a sort of a supercomputer and a, and a, a uh, world-class uh, film studio in their pocket. And indeed, for the younger part of Generation Z, that they haven't even needed to type. They could simply talk at a machine and it would give them the answers they wanted. So that really is the difference between our generations. And it does give you a different perspective. Um, and so one of the th- one of the lessons, in a way, of this is that as parents, we should be talking to our children about the difference between the on and offline world, the difference between relationships in those two worlds, and some of the risks about being online. Uh, what are some of the risks? Some of them obviously are very obvious, predatory uh, sexual behaviour and, and, and so on. But uh, uh, beyond criminal activity or you know, lewd and, and um, uh, dangerous activity, what, what are some of the uh, um, addictions that are nevertheless very damaging, uh, particularly for younger people, but actually for all of us? Yeah, so so uh, 
um, technology-assisted child sexual abuse, which you just referred to, is one of three categories that I would put at the very bad end, with the other two being cyberbullying and hate speech. Um, but in the sort of more general category, I think the negativity of social media. So people don't realise this necessarily, but because negative emotions are more engaging than, po than positive ones, negativity is actually designed into the algorithms which drive what comes up on our screens because the interest of those driving the machines is to keep our eyeballs attuned to them as for as long as possible so they can sell us to advertisers. And uh, by serving up more and more negativity, they, they keep our attention. So that's the biggest one. And that is probably why, but, but it isn't a proven causal link. It's probably why over the last 10 years, rates of unhappiness, anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide have gone up by a factor during the same decade that this technology has become ubiquitous. Mm. And what are some of the ways in which these algorithms are um, you know, predicting what users are interested in is really narrowing uh, users' uh, horizons rather than, as one would imagine the case, broadening them? So, um... It's very difficult to be specific because the algorithms aren't transparent, of course. We haven't actually got the algorithms. But what seems to happen is that the algorithm picks up on what we like and then serves us more of it. Now, the danger with that is that um, a bit like in the old days, if you're, if you're a Tory, you read The Telegraph. If you're a socialist, you read The Guardian. But at least you had the BBC, you had ITV, you had The Economist, you had the FT, you had other news sources to look at. In this, in this day and age when Facebook is the biggest news feed in the world, and the danger with that is that the algorithm just keeps sending you the same news, the news that you like. And one of the most striking quotes in the book is from a 20 year old I interviewed who said, I actually find it almost impossible to have a serious debate with a university friend these days because we have to spend the first 20 minutes to half an hour of the conversation agreeing the facts because he's read a different news feed to mine and he, he gets his news. I get my news and we can't even agree on the basic facts before we start the debate. Mm. And how concentrated are, are these algorithms in terms of their ownership? Are we really talking about a few massive companies like uh, like Alphabet that owns Google are really controlling, a, not a monopoly, but, but a, a very, very high share of user information? Well, the, the two giants are, as you say, Alphabet, which owns Google, and then Facebook, which also owns Instagram and WhatsApp. So but Facebook and Instagram between them. So, yes, these are the two enormous companies. Mm. And what are the implications for that concentration of information? Well, think about it like this. If Facebook itself is the biggest news feed in the world, and it's, it's owned by obviously one company, it is one company, and it's actually rather uniquely for a, for a company of its size, very strongly controlled by one individual. OK, can you imagine? And that's, by the way, one of the reasons that, that these companies have been called by some sovereign companies, because they're almost like countries. Can you imagine the reaction to the world if Facebook had been owned by, let's say, the Russian state? I mean, it's, it's inconceivable that this would have been allowed to happen. But because it's a private company that's owned by shareholders, notwithstanding that it's, it's very largely controlled by a very small group of individuals, it has been allowed to happen. I find that most striking. Mm -hmm. Would they perhaps argue, and I'd like to put this to, to Alex Story, who uh, joins us from Austria, um, would they perhaps argue that actually they're not really controlling the algorithms, algorithms are just reflections of millions and millions of, of users, and uh, in fact it is helping uh, users to 
better comprehend and get access to the information at their fingertips in the quickest possible way that's of most use to them. Yeah, from, from uh, my reading of your book, uh, Bob, the, the, as I went through the book, I, I, I was initially very bleak, and then I thought slightly differently about it. I ended up being quite positive about the future of humanity, uh, mainly because of the, the, uh, the, the, the discussion uh, around AI. AI, for me, um, the more I read, the more I thought to myself, well, actually, it's, it, it's not that smart what it's doing, really. Uh, and the danger really is the, the fact that it tells you what you did and it makes predictions on what you will do based on what you did. In other words, it's a very mechanical process. So that's one aspect uh, that I thought was, was interesting that came out of your book. It's essentially like a drug addict, uh, a, 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 a drug dealer pushing the same drug to a person who knows quite well. But that's all it does. Uh, and it can make predictions and it can make it can try and define what it um, what you might want to do, given what you've done. But the interesting thing for me is that one of the dangers is that we we get to realize the limitation. We, we, we spend a lot of time on platforms try, uh, trying to speak to one another through a brokered um, uh, mechanism, which is the, the, the social media platform. But the social media platform forces us to use a very imprecise method of communication, which is the written word. AI, on the other hand, is a mechanism, again, using data that tries to push something that it knows you've already used or uh, uh, bought or whatever, and it keeps doing the same thing over and over again. For me, the hope is actually that once we get to realize what AI actually does and that it forces you to, it, it tries to keep you doing the same things over and over again. Once you realize that, you can get the discipline and realize that the answers to a better life are actually still in, the, in, in, a, in a human being's hand. In other words, AI and social media can't tell you what you should be doing to be happy and it can't tell you why you're around. In other words, it takes us back to those, those, um, those very hopeful human questions, which we haven't yet been able to solve over the last millennia. So I'm sorry if I'm, dis I'm, I'm pushing the, the conversation slightly out of it, but I was really hopeful at the end of reading your book, and I'm not sure that that's what you, you were expecting. No, uh, but no, no. So, so let me, let me uh, come back on two or three things. So firstly, what you're saying is that, is that the algorithms tend to be reinforcing, um, yeah. and, they, and they tend to be amplifying the same thing, and that's probably true. Um, uh, which is why you get what we call echo chambers. Uh, yeah. uh, that, that's, that's how that effect happens. However, let me just play devil's advocate for a minute. In an AI world where basic work may be taken away by a combination of machines, robots, AI, surely what we need is for humans, what, what humans will need to do is the most complicated work, the work that only humans can do, okay? Now, if at the same time that that need is developing and the basic work is disappearing to machines, we're actually teaching our adolescents to multitask and not do anything complicated. In other words, to they can't deep read, they can't deep watch, they can't deep listen, they can't deep attend. Are we training them to do focused, concentrated, complex things, which they will need to do in an AI world? So that's, that's my devil's advocate to your point. And by the way, 
I'm also not negative about the future. I end up very positive because I think for a different reason, and, that, and it's this, I think my generation is leaving uh, Generation Z with a pretty miserable uh, hand of cards, whether it be a damaged planet, whether it be the hangover from the financial crisis, whether it be you know a continuing global war on terror or now COVID debt. I don't think we've done our kids that many favours, frankly. But the good news is, having met 200 of them in the course of researching the book, what you find is that because we've done that to them, they are growing up knowing that these social exist, these issues exist and very motivated to address them. So they have a very strong sense of uh, the fact that businesses need to be doing more than making profits. They need to be serving some societal purpose, that they want to address the damage we've done to the planet uh, and that they know they're going to have a difficult time financially. So they'll need to work hard. So um, actually, they are more resilient, very resourceful, very socially uh, with a great social conscience. And I am optimistic that Generation Z will will improve the world dramatically. But I don't think we've set them up brilliantly for it. Well, let, let me let me just have a, a, a note of, of pessimism. Uh, I mean, is <laughs> someone has to drag things down? Um, is there a, a danger though that that this generation, whatever their intentions and their that, that they have quite a shallow knowledge? You know, if knowledge is so at your fingertips, you can just look things up um, instantly. That then the powers of retaining knowledge, retaining information a loss to you and this idea which is quite fashionable that you know it's important to develop the, the, the questioning skills but not have knowledge it seems to me it's difficult to, to know the right questions to, to ask if you don't have a, a background knowledge in the first place. Yeah so what, one, one of the other quotes I loved in the book was this was actually I think the same guy in fact who, who was talking about the fact that he had to agree the facts before he could have a, a debate which is he said that when it comes to the news he realizes when friends um, send him article headlines that it's all about the cult of the first to know, not actually to know in any great detail. So he would then read the article and maybe try and have a conversation with him about it, only to realize that all they'd done was re read the heading and wanted to tell him that they'd seen the heading and knew, knew of the news, not that they'd actually gone into it in any great detail. So, so I think you have a point. But I think, uh, if, if, I, if I may, the, the, the reason why I was hopeful is not because... I'm, uh, it's not really because I, um, uh, I was thinking about the problem in, in the way that you were looking at it. I was hopeful because the book made me do, made me change my habits uh, in terms of the way that I, um, uh, I go about my day. Uh, the first, so the, the first thing is I've essentially made some rules for, for the house. Uh, uh, in the bedroom, there's no phones. Uh, in the uh, in some of the rooms, we're not allowed to have devices, and I'm trying to make sure that the the children, um, and certainly my wife and I, uh, spend a lot of time in places without devices at all. In other words, um, uh, when we when we sit around the table, there are no phones. That's something that was kind of uh, was bringing into our family life already. But the book really made me realise that it the it was really on us as a family unit to do that. So. The, my hope is actually from the, the, about your book is that you're ma you're making the point and it's really up to the individual starting off as an individual with his family to say bob is right we need discipline and it's this idea of setting up some rules within um within the family setting that starts the hopefulness of it in other words we can do something about it 
It doesn't need to be at a government level. It doesn't need to be at a supranational level. Um, because one of the things I was saying to, to, to Graham before is if we wait for regulation to change and if we wait for the UN to intervene, first of all, we'll be dealing with people with much more financial firepower and our children will be 30 or 40 by the time it's solved. So what I really liked about the emotions that the book gave me is it made me say, think, okay, this is our Dunkirk. There are few, we've made some mistakes, but there's still a lot of hope because we control the situation as individuals. That's partially one of the reasons why I was um, positive. The other one is because I don't think that AI will be able to replace humanity. The way that I thought about it myself is data, uh, 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 digital data is binary. You have its ones and zeros. In other words, it's relatively superficial. Humanity is operating in, in what I consider to be eight dimensions. So we've got the five senses, you've got uh, the two genders, and then you've got time. So the complexity of humanity is so much greater. For me, that's, that was the, that's what you made me realize when I was reading it. And I thought, actually, we will not be replaced or be re we can't replace humanity just with, with data or robots because each of, the th each of these elements just miss a huge portion of what humanity is and humanity is not in the written word it's in a set of it's it's in this very complex universe that we create that makes us who we are that's the reason why i ended up super positive about your book i i understand that completely and the in a way a really interesting phase for me was when i'd finished the book um, and i started getting invited to some events where um the subject of digital overload was being discussed and what i discovered is that particularly in the States, um, but also in the UK, there are some charities who are focused on digital adolescent well-being specifically and trying to um, deal with the issues of digital overload. And what you find is that the um, sparkiest forward-looking youngsters have already worked out that they're digitally overloaded and they're actually developing their own solutions to deal with it. And that, that to me is the most exciting thing is that in a way, some of the generation has already worked it out and they're on the case. And that's, that's what gives me hope. Well, the, the two uh, aspects to this, what individuals can do and uh, individuals, families and educators can do. The other is what governments can do, uh, both at international level and at national level. I mean, going um, before Parliament here in Britain is the online harms bill. Uh, Bob, I wonder if you can just outline some of the key features of that and your, your assessment of their um, likely effectiveness. Yes, yeah, so um, the first thing to say is that the Online Harms Bill is part of a suite of legislation that the UK government is bringing in. There are three other parts, and I'll, I'll put it in that context in a minute. The Online Harms Bill first um, is genuinely, I think, world groundbreaking in the sense that it will, for the first time, I think anywhere, place a statutory duty of care on uh, big tech platforms and app designers to have regard to the potential harms that their products and services may cause, particularly to youngsters. And then if they assess there are harms, to take actions to mitigate them. And Ofcom will have the job of looking at their assessments and the actions they've taken to decide whether they're sufficient. And if they deem them not to be sufficient, either the assessment is inadequate or the uh, mitigation actions are insufficient, they can fine these companies and ultimately after two years may even be able to hold 
senior executives personally accountable. So this is this is genuinely a groundbreaking legislation. If you think about it in the context of the Industrial Revolution, I'm sure Alex will want to come in on. It's a bit like health and safety legislation. It was a long time after dangerous machinery was around that governments decided they need to protect workers by giving their employers a responsibility to uh, to make sure the, the, the equipment was safe. Well, this is a bit like that. Um, so that's the first thing. The second thing is that there is now going to be a basic relationship education in school as part of the core curriculum. Um, what that means is that there will be a module which teaches the difference between on and offline relationships and goes into some detail about the risks of online, online relationships. It's not as far as I would like to have seen it go in terms of a full core, compulsory core curriculum course in responsible internet use, but it is a good start. Um, the third area is that the government is setting up a digital markets unit within the Competitions and Market Authority. That will address very specifically uh, the sort of monopolistic aspects of some of these businesses and actions which might be taken to address them. And then the fourth one is the age-appropriate design code. So this is a new code the government's bringing in, which will require uh, the uh, product designers to have consideration for who, who is going to be using their platforms and, and the content they will have access to and whether it's age appropriate. Um, and so when you take all four together, I think the UK government does deserve quite a bit of credit for, um, for genuinely, as I said, world leading legislation. Now, I could criticize it in some areas. I would like to have seen um, hard age verification. I think, I think you, should have to, you should have to identify yourself to the platform when you sign up to use one. At the moment, there are many ways of getting around that. So that, that gives rise to the problem of fate. And the problem of fakes and anonymity on the web is absolutely enormous. We could talk about that probably for a whole hour in itself. Um, but I th and I think if you cut out fakes, just to put some stats on it, the first quarter of last year, Facebook, which is now starting to try and take down fake accounts, took down in one quarter 2.2 billion fake accounts, which is equivalent to its entire user base. Just to give you... That's a, so, so, Bob, sorry to interrupt you on that. I, that was an amazing... Uh, stat that you had in your book I found that astounding um, how did they because 2.5 billion that's more accounts than the people using the platform presumably no yes well it's their own statistics they, they now publish quarterly as part of their uh, sort of content moderation uh, self audits some of these statistics and that was one that they published themselves. Are there uh, dangers of unintended consequences with legislation of this kind? I mean, the uh, fines are really draconian. I mean, up to, in the most egregious cases, up to 10% of global turnover, which you know, for a, a company like Google or Facebook, I mean, if you do that a few times, it gets you could pay off the UK's national debt. But um, is the danger that it's very successful with these very large companies, but it will just drive um, uh, content to uh, small and uh, secretive uh, sites, which are which operate beyond an ability of, of government to really uh, to really get at? I don't think so, because I think anything that acquires any scale will be subject to this to this act. And I think actually that's where the pro-competition digital markets unit comes in, because their whole approach will be, how do we make sure that if these companies have become so big that they have dominant market positions, that perhaps the data they've got access to is shared by medium-sized and smaller companies. Indeed, that, that is very much the push the EU is on at the moment. Uh, Commissioner Vestager 
is pursuing that precise uh, tack. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time. We have to to leave it there. But uh, Alex Storey and Robert Wigley, whose book Born Digital, The Story of a Distracted Generation, is out now. Thank you both very much indeed uh, for your thoughts and observations. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Really, really interesting conversation. And thank you, Alex. My pleasure. Bye-bye. If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.